You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, episode 35. Jake Willers is a TV presenter, award-winning filmmaker, and host of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. He has traveled to 38 countries and filmed in some of the most inhospitable places on Earth. Having grown up on a wildlife park that he managed for many years, Jake gained a wealth of experience and a passion for the natural world, which he now injects into his filmmaking. Jake's shows have enjoyed success in over 147 countries and have been translated into 25 languages, working with channels including National Geographic Channel International, Nat Geo Wild, Animal Planet, and Channel 5 UK. In 2007, Jake moved from Cambridge, England to the US and formed Nine Caribou Productions, a production company dedicated to expanding people's knowledge of wildlife and the world around us. Yes, you're absolutely correct. You did just hear me introduce myself in the third person. Um, I did that because I didn't want to change the style of the beginning of the show. Uh, This is probably the weirdest podcast episode I'm ever going to do because it's about myself. It's called the Emergency Plan B episode. Why? Well, as you can imagine, everyone that I have on the show as guests are pretty hard to track down and be able to get time with them to record episodes. And this month has been crazy for uh, for myself, um, as well as three of the guests I had lined up to record interviews with, who had to bow out at the last minute. And that left me without an episode for you. Now, the last thing on earth I wanted to do was not have an episode for this month. And so this is the emergency plan B episode. Um, one of the other reasons that this has happened is that because... The last year and a half that has been, you know, incredibly hard for everybody has seen all of the film festivals being virtual, pretty much. And what I do is I film and record many of these podcasts while on location at those film festivals. That way I can have a backlog of them that I can then, you know, roll out as the months go through and uh, and make sure I have an episode to keep this consistent. As many of you may know, when I started this podcast way back in 2018, um, there was a there was a there was a gap there because I got extremely busy. It was really hard to keep the momentum up with this. Um, but I don't want that to happen anymore. This wants I want to make sure that we get an episode out every single month. In fact, I'm actually looking to change it to bi-weekly, so every other week to get an episode out. And I'm going to be starting a Patreon page uh, to make that possible. So, without further ado, this is my episode of the podcast, and the way I'm going to do this is I have a few questions written out here. These are questions that have been asked to me before when I've been on other people's podcasts. So, rather than me just rambling on for half an hour to 45 minutes or so, I thought I would just ask myself questions that had been asked of me before when I've been on other people's shows. Uh, And I thought that would be the best format to do this. So, without further ado, here we go. I'm going to get into this by asking myself the same question I ask everyone when we get started, and that is how did I break into the industry? Well, for me, it was like many, many other people in this industry. It wasn't a road that I actually sought to take in terms of a career. 
I was running a wildlife park. It's actually a family wildlife park that my father started many, many years ago. Um, I grew up on that park from about 10 years old. I was staying between Cambridge with my mother, where my mother lived, and I, at weekends, would go to the wildlife park and, uh, and work there over the weekends. And uh, then when I left school, I started working there full time. And this gave me this massive uh, amount of experience with, with wildlife. Um, we had lots of species from a very young age. We had a lot of farm and stock animals. And as time went on, that changed and it became a, a center for breeding programs for endangered species, as well as uh, zoo animals that were needing homing from other zoos and parks. And so we ended up having things like Bengal tigers, uh, gray wolves, there are now maned wolves there also, uh, otters, we had caiman alligator, we had, um, gosh, everything. My mind's going blank of how many animals we had. We had hundreds of species of animals there. And I was lucky enough to get a massive amount of experience with each and every one of those animals on site over the years. As time went on, I was trained as a uh, uh, someone who could administer tranquilizing drugs and vaccines uh, through blowpipes and through applicators, we called them back then, but basically dart rifles. And that helped me, uh, as I will go on to tell you, um, in my later career. So we would have vets come along to look at the wildlife and uh, I would dart the wildlife and knock them out and sedate them, basically, while, so that the vets could look at them. And so I gained a massive wealth of experience uh, with wildlife throughout my younger years, literally from 10 years old, looking after snakes and lizards and farm stock, right through to looking after and designing uh, enclosures and alarm systems and everything that went into running a wildlife park. Uh, I had the pleasure of being able to be, um, you know, a big part of. And so what happened later in my career, I was, this was back in the year 2000, I curated an insect house called Waterworld and Bug City. It was actually insects, reptiles, and fish. And this was to be a separate uh, attraction at the wildlife park. This was something that people could come along and just go into this one attraction. It was at the main entrance. It was a building that my father and I had actually built uh, years before. And we had, we had originally built it as an aquatic center where we were open to the public and we sold fish and fish tanks and everything, all the paraphernalia and accessories that go with um, aquatic, uh, the aquatic industry. Um, but over the years and going through multiple recessions, times got really hard and we had lots of competition and we were looking at different ways to be able to subsidize the wildlife park. And so I had had a huge interest in insects for a very long time and decided that we would open up an insect house and we would do it as a separate attraction, as I say, so people could come. We basically would have school trips uh, come and just go around the insect house and we would have kids after school, you know, get their parents to take them there because they could go around it in an hour rather than around the whole, the whole wildlife park. And so this opened up in 2000 and around early 
early the next year, I think it was, 2001. No, that's not true. It was actually, it was early 2000. I had a production company come to the wildlife park, see the attraction and do some interviews with me about some of the animals around the park and also some of the insects. This production company was just getting themselves started. They were... Uh, working predominantly in the news industry and doing mini stories for uh, satellite TV, cable TV. They, they, they carried out these interviews. Uh, a few weeks went by and then I got a call and it was from the executive producer who said, look, we, we feel like you, you were, did great on camera and we think you would make a good presenter for TV. Would you be interested in filming a promo for a show about insects? And, you know, I, I at this time, I was working seven days a week. I, I basically had a day off every two weeks. I had, uh, you know, one day off every two weeks. So it was best part of six, you know, I worked seven days, then six days, seven days, six days, just like that. And the day that the hours in the day I was working was anywhere from eight to 12 to even 15 hours at that time. Um, so it was really hard to think of doing anything else but running the wildlife park. I was managing the wildlife park. So that meant everything from making sure that the animals were being taken care of by their keepers um, to the marketing of the wildlife park and and the running of the the fish and insect house uh, and the running of the, the the cafeteria and the entrance the the ticket where they, we were selling tickets it, it involved everything so I was extremely busy so I said to them look I'm not sure how we can do this, but, um, you know, if you could come along early one morning, then, uh, then sure we can, you know, we can film a promo. I really thought nothing more of it than that. Um, so sure enough, a couple of weeks later, they came by early in the morning. We filmed this promo that I thought was completely ridiculous. <laughs> I think I was making peanut butter sandwiches for the cockroaches, um, and, and taking them in and talking about the bugs and, and what have you. And, it was really just to get, it was like a sizzle reel to get uh, producers kind of interested in me as a presenter and what I had to offer in terms of knowledge with, uh, with the wildlife. So we filmed that. Uh, they went away and I thought the whole thing was a joke, to be perfectly honest. And then it was a few weeks later, maybe six weeks later, that I got a call from, again, the, uh, the executive producer who said, we pitched the idea to the National Geographic Channel and they have given us the green light for a six-part series. And at that moment, I, I honestly could not believe it was real. I thought they must be starving for programming. <laughs> if, they had, if they had seen this thing that we had filmed uh, and they, they liked that, then I thought there must be a problem. Um, so, but, uh, you know, the, so, so long and story short, I, I then went on to, we, we filmed, um, I think it was the beginning of the next year, we, we went out to South Africa and we started filming. And other than doing a few little pieces at the wildlife park, like intro pieces um, and a few little things around the park with certain insects that would... Uh, and and uh, arthropods that would fall in line with the theme of the show. Um, I'd really done nothing else at that point. I had no idea what it meant to be uh, on TV. I had no idea about the industry, nothing. All I was concerned about was how is this going to work out for me and the wildlife park and making sure the wildlife park 
you know, could still tick over nicely while I was away. But here was this great opportunity for me because marketing had been a big, you know, a big issue for us over the years for the wildlife park because we never had any money to put it put into marketing in any big way. You know, we did local, uh, local TV ads and we did um, local newspaper ads, which are all very cheap. Uh, and then we worked really, really hard to make stories about the animals at the wildlife park that we could then send press releases out and get stories in the paper every month. And that was my only experience really about being on camera was that we would have local news crews come out and they would interview me about a story that we had sent them a press release. It may be, I, I remember one year we had um, a model of Tower Bridge, uh, Tower Bridge that goes over the Thames in London. And um, it was, a, I'm, I'm not sure the scale of it, but it was a pretty big, you know, the towers were probably eight, about 10 feet tall each. And the bridge spanned around 12 feet, maybe, tw maybe 12, 15, or maybe even 20 feet in total. And we were given it from, I, I believe it was a stage play. And the people had said, hey, do you want this? You know, it's going to get trashed. And it was a great model. And so we put it over our capybara pond. And we thought this will make a great story, right? Tower Bridge comes to Shepworth Wildlife Park. And it was actually called Willers Mill back in the day. But it, uh, I changed it to Shepworth Wildlife Park. And Tower Bridge is now over the Capybara Pond and Mini Stream. And we had the, um, uh, I think it was the Army, the Army Corps come in and build this thing for us in place. And so the story was really about this donation and the army coming in and helping build it and put it across this, uh, uh, this small stream. And so those were the types of things we were doing for marketing. So to suddenly be in a series for National Geographic International was huge. And I made time for it because although I didn't know how it was going to turn out at the time, uh, I was assured that it was going to be something that was going to be aired and uh, that would be great publicity for us. And so I embraced it. I took um, a few weeks off to uh, head away to film the first series in Africa. And um, and first of all, this was just, just to differentiate the, the channels. National Geographic International, I was in the UK. National, Inter, uh, National Geographic International is the international arm that, that in those days, it may be more now, but it went to 147 countries. That is not including North America because North America has their own programming, their own scheduling, um, and the rest of the world you know, is, is separate from that. And so the programs that I made as a presenter for National Geographic went to 147 countries at that time and were translated into 25 languages. And I think it is probably more than that now, but this was back in the early 2000s. And so I went out, um, I filmed the first se season and uh, it went out and it was hugely successful. Um, you know, it led to a second series. It led to multiple shows with National Geographic. Um, and you know, it was uh, it was a real shock, uh, an honor, but a shock to be thrown into doing something like that that I really didn't expect to be anything much at all. But I loved it. I completely embraced it. I loved it because for me now, it was this tool that you know, years earlier, throughout all of the marketing and working at the wildlife park. Uh, 
uh, what came along with that was a huge outreach program that we had for schools. And it meant that our outreach was that we would go out and give talks to schools in their at, at their school, right? So we'd be in their assembly room, we would take animals along and we would talk to the kids about about wildlife. Um, we would also have an education uh, series on site where the schools would come to us and we would give them talks at the various different enclosures. And then we built an education center as well where kids could come along and sit in the education center and then be taught about wildlife. And so this suddenly to me, I, you know, the cog started turning. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. We're going from the wildlife park, which in its early days, when I started there full time, we had about 15,000 people a year coming around. Uh, and it, it wasn't sustainable. There was no way we could keep it going with those fewer numbers. Over a 10 year period, um, while I was there, we built it from 15,000 to 100,000 people a year. Um, it became extremely popular, still is today, still in the UK, just outside of Cambridge uh, in the village of Shepworth. And what I what I really loved was this sudden transition from, you know, us touching a few schools with our information every year, maybe 30 or 40 schools a year um, and going out and giving talks, doing outreach and having them on site to suddenly having a program where I was presenting and it was something I was hugely uh, passionate about. Um, presenting about insects and, and I was passionate about them because from a young age, I mean, let's face it, you know, creepy crawlies, right? Most kids love those kind of things when they're small and they grow up and, you know, fear starts. We, we take on fear from our parents if they're scared of spiders or, you know, cockroaches or whatever it might be. Uh, and we slowly take that on and then suddenly we find these things all creepy and terrible and, you know, they're, they're now there's this big fear factor with them. Um, I wanted to dispel that because the whole point of the attraction, Waterworld and Bug City, was to show how incredible and diverse this group of animals were. Um, and and also show how important they were and how, you know, if it wasn't for, uh, you know, cockroaches, which, um, you know, there's some somewhere around 5,000 species of cockroaches, of which only about 25 are pest species, the ones that, you know, are found in kitchens and in in residential areas and, and crops and what have you, you know, that are considered to be a pest. Those other thousands of them um, are actually hugely important for decomposition and, you know, rainforest ecology. And um, and so I really wanted to, you know, that, that was one of my main messages with the attraction was to show people that. And now here I was with my own TV show being able to have those themes running through the the series and show it to a much much bigger audience worldwide um and to me that was incredible um, absolutely incredible so um so yeah that that was how i got into tv um it, it then became a very very important part of 
what we were doing at the park to be able to give me the time off to go away and film. And, you know, I ended up filming the first series. I, I think after that, I filmed a one hour special called Mosquito Hell on um, uh, mosquito transmitted diseases, where we went to four continents and looked at how mosquitoes were affecting uh, human populations and how they were dealing with those. Um, then we did Insects from Hell too. Uh, all of these names, of course, were made by the network. Um, <laughs> they all had to have hell in them. At that time, it was a, a theme. Um, insects from Hell, Mosquito Hell, Insects from Hell 2. We did Pests from Hell after that, where we looked at bats and mice and rats. Um, we did Rogue Raiders. Rogue Raiders was... Uh, a, a fantastic series that looked at human wildlife interactions with wild boar in Germany, black bears here in Tahoe, um, alligators in Florida, kangaroos in Australia, Canberra, Australia. Uh, and what else did we do? Uh, many more. Um, that that series ended up being, it was actually made for to be one of the launch series for Nat Geo Wild in the UK or worldwide. So at that time, before that, everything had been on National Geographic National Geographic International. And then there was that change in that split where Nat Geo Wild came out to be their wildlife arm of the of the um the network. And it was a launch series. And so um it was fantastic to be able to go to the launch party and see the series up and um, you know, incredible times. Um but you know, something through my entire career of presenting was that uh, I felt, and I'm moving on here, I've got, you know, some of my, uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot is about the biggest challenges of being a presenter. And and so moving into that, um, it, it was extremely challenging because I had zero experience when it came to presenting. Everything that I learned as a presenter, I learned on the job. I didn't go to any kind of training. Uh, my brother-in-law at the time was actually a BBC weatherman. And uh, he was going to all of these, he was just embarking on that when I was embarking on uh, being a, a TV presenter. And he was being sent to these uh, um, lessons to learn how to pronunciate properly and to learn how to be on camera. I had none of that. There was just nothing at all. It was just me, the the, the camera crew, and um, a, a kind of rough ride, you know, into how to be a presenter. And so some of the biggest challenges I faced were, first of all, nerves. Um, you know, I was extremely nervous when, uh, you know, being just myself, a camera guy and a, a director, uh, and producer <clears throat> when uh, we first got into uh, the wildlife park. But then on my first shoot out in the uh, Kruger National Park in South Africa, I was with, uh, I think there were 13 people in the crew. Now, there are, our crew that we would travel with uh, on an ongoing basis was around five people, myself and four other people. Um, but with this particular shoot, we had execs there from National Geographic. We had other experts in the field. So we had an entomologist. We had a scorpion expert. We had an, a, um, a spider expert. We had uh, rangers who were with us. Um, and so the, the crew as a whole for that one trip was around 13 people. And the first thing I ever had to film for Insects from Hell uh, in front of all those people was a a sequence f uh, about dung beetles. Now, I was 
really excited to see when we we came across a giant pile of dung which is about two and a half to three feet across it had been rather than being domed it would kind of flattened out because it had around 200 large dung beetles on it and i was ecstatic to see this but then the kind of fear uh you know crept up on me when the crew were ready to go and the camera guy was set up and they wanted me to walk up looking at the camera uh camera guy was actually going to walk backwards with me um as i walked towards the dung pile and i was going to say an intro piece and then lay down on the ground and just get stuck into giving you know information about these particular beetles and i just remember standing while the camera guy was fiddling with the camera and prepping the camera for the shoot and looking over behind the camera guy uh, quite a ways away about 25 to 50 yards away um, to give us room to do what we were doing this 12 people were stood in a row they literally were just stood in a row waiting for me to perform if you like that's what it felt like and I had done nothing like this before. Uh, so I went into, I had a panic attack. And um, it, it was a full on, you know, palms just sweating. My forehead, I mean, it was 100 degrees in the, in, uh, the Kruger Park, uh, you know, full on sunlight. Uh, I was in panic, full on panic mode, sweating heavily. Um, I mean, my shirt was just drenched. My forehead, I had sweat dripping down into my eyes, my hands, my heart was pounding out of my chest. And um, and something that used to happen to me around that time is also I would get uh, like a, a blockage in my ear. And one of my ears would just kind of block up when I would go into a panic attack like that. And I, I I didn't know what to do about it. There was no, no time. I started kind of hyperventilating. And then it was like action. The camera guy started walking backwards. And I started walking and talking. And all I really remember is that I had to just focus on what I knew and how passionate I was about those bugs. Because, you know, speaking in public had always been something that was scary. Um, but now this was like, wow, this is going to be recorded for TV and I don't know what I'm doing. But what really saved me and probably my biggest piece of advice to anyone looking to do TV work with wildlife or present as a you know wildlife presenter is understand what your subject is. Because if you understand it, you're all, there's always going to be fear. I don't know anyone of all the people I've ever interviewed, all the people I know, friends in the industry. There is no one, whatever level they are, who does not have nerves uh, before going on camera. Now, they do change, you know, once you've done public speaking or being on camera for any length of time, it gets much, much easier and more enjoyable. Um, but there's always a certain amount of nerves involved because we're human, right? But the thing that really saved me was that I was considered to be an insect expert at that time. I didn't consider myself as one, but certainly that's what I was being touted as by the channel. Um, and it, because I was in a place where I was really excited about this pile of dung and these beetles, I was able to lay down in the beetles and literally in this dung and pick them up and interact and just go into a mode of, look at this, isn't this incredible? And that saved me. 
because if it was something that was highly structured and um, and scripted, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Later on, that did come. The scripting, you know, later on, I was writing uh, in the field and doing my own scripting, and I was being given scripting with scientific, heavy scientific sentences in. Um, that got much harder. But because by that point, I had been doing it for you know, for a while, it got much, much easier. So that was that was one of the hardest things, which is initially getting over the sheer panic of being on camera and doing what I was doing. Um, I mean, I think it's getting so much easier these days because of things like this. You know, we're, uh, so many of us now are on Zoom calls. We see ourselves on camera, uh, on FaceTime or Skype or, you know, just being on phones, making videos all the time. I think it is much easier because it's now something that is becoming quite the norm to be on a camera, to film yourself, to, you know, it, it's just, it's everywhere. And so I think it is a little easier these days because um, that's the way the world is going. The other thing that made it extremely hard was uh, lack of authenticity. Now, this is a huge one because throughout the time that I was purely presenting and doing nothing else, you know, behind the camera, um, I was, I felt to be very unauthentic. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that I was, it, it was something that the producers wanted. They wanted it to be very high energy. They wanted it to be more, and this was a term that was used, more like Steve, be more like Steve, like Steve Irwin, because Steve Irwin was on Discovery at the time that I was on National Geographic. And what really I remember was just feeling very uh, stuck with that, like be more like Steve, like be like someone else. That's what it felt like, act like someone else. And I had a real hard time with that because not only is it hard to be told to be like someone else, but that once you start to do something that is not you, that is not authentic to you, you start to act. And once you start acting, unless you are a professional actor, it's very hard to keep consistency throughout what you do. And so I would have times where I'd be high energy and it'd be great where it's early on in the shoot and I could put, turn on this high energy and really be very different to how I would normally. But then as time went on and I, you know, I mean, it could be within a week, like the fourth or fifth day could be extremely hard because we had had, you know, been hard getting a good night's sleep. There's jet lag involved. There's just the heat, you know, the exhaustion of the shoot would take its toll. And I would be in a place where it'd be very hard to suddenly turn on this persona and be someone else on camera and speak in a different way. It was all very intense and, you know, trying to change the way my voice sounded. And uh, that took its toll. After a while, it was kind of, res I had some resentment about trying, you know, having to do that. Now, here's the thing. I, I certainly, I don't regret any of that in any way, shape or form. But I think times have changed. Certainly, uh, these days, I feel like, you know, authenticity is so very important because it is obvious when people are not being themselves. Two, that style of presenting, I think, is on its way out. It's probably already gone. In speaking to the executives I've spoken to over the years, um, you know, that kind of presenting really doesn't draw in um, the crowds like it used to. I think authenticity, being yourself, being able for people to see that you're being yourself and you're not being this over-the-top type of character 
really draws bigger audiences these days um, because it's real, because it seems real and it is real than trying to be something else. So, um, so that, that was extremely hard in the early days, but um, you know, and that was actually one of the things that really pushed me away from presenting was that I didn't really like that. I never wanted to be an actor, never even wanted to be on TV. It wasn't something I had sought out. It was something that had, I'd fallen into and now was struggling with some of those, those, um, those areas but I think that had that has changed now and then the other thing was understanding the industry I had, I had zero in uh, understanding of what how the industry worked um, and and which meant that over about an eight-year period I never went to film festivals you know I was on TV in 147 countries and I was being I was being taken out to Poland to give um, you know, talks at like the the Explorers Festival, and uh, go and give talks to executives of large companies for advertisers for National Geographic, and I was giving talks in Singapore at the launch of the series for a full week, giving four or five talks a day, um, and it was fantastic to do those things, but I didn't really understand the industry, and at that time it would have been fantastic to go to film festivals and really branch out with what I was doing and understand more about the fact that the industry wasn't everything that I thought it was based on my little insular um, experience of it. You know, I was very much in this one little pod moving around the world and I knew nothing about anything else. And I think in some ways, you know, it's so, I mean, we say this all the time. It's so important to get out there, speak to the people in the industry and understand where you want to be. I really had no understanding and I didn't have time to understand it because, you know, I would be away for these pockets of time filming and then I'd be back at the wildlife park and I had to forget all about it while I dealt with the issues that were waiting for me there. Um, I think had I understood it more, it would have been an easier transition and, and uh, yeah, different things would have, different doors would have opened at that point. So, you know, that was a, an incredibly, uh, it was an interesting time. It was a really interesting, uh, you know, door open into the industry. And it took me a long time, as I say, to really understand kind of how the industry worked and, and where to go from there. <clears throat> so, my next question is what what made me move to behind the camera well here's the thing i i once i had been in the industry for a few years what i really started getting into was the camera person's work I loved the idea of how they were painting pictures, if you like, with a camera. The creativity of how they would look at the, the you know, the producer and the director would say, okay, this is what we're after. Here's a story. We're going to get Jake to come down here and do this, and then we're going to need this B-roll. I loved the way the camera person would then go away and they would just start filming and putting together the story in images. And it was my first realization that, wow, you know, there, there's way more to just pointing a camera in one direction and grabbing, you know, a, a bunch of or one image or a bunch of images just to put something together. And I'd never really thought about how many images it took to, say, fill a one hour show, one hour at that time being 45 minutes because of the commercials. Um, 
But it takes a huge, huge, even for a half an hour, our seri original series were half hour episodes, but it takes a massive amount of footage to do that. And I'd never really realized that, but when I start to see how the camera guy was really working at pulling these images together to build sequences, it suddenly became this whole other world of, wow, you know, there is a mammoth amount of creativity that goes into that. And it was around then that I started picking up a camera. I picked up a stills camera first, and I'd always had a stills camera. I was always taking pictures of the wildlife. But then I started doing some animation with it. And I started doing silly little projects, just like paste, putting together images and seeing how you could make a like, stop animation. And I was fascinated. And this is back in the day before, you know, we could have great editing systems on our home computers. You know, home computers were a pretty new thing. And so there was, it wasn't like now where you can have a computer set here with you know, very, very cheap software that uh, does incredible things. Back then, you know, you had to have an Avid system and it was tens and tens of thousands of dollars uh, to be able to do that. And um, it was just way out of my reach. But time went on. Uh, I started helping out the camera guy. I'd start looking in the camera, really taking an interest as to what was going on. And, um, and I was fascinated by it at that point. Now, I moved out to I met my wife while I was filming bears for Rogue Raiders out in uh, Lake Tahoe, which is just close to where I am now, just 35 minutes up and over the Sierra Nevada. And I made a very, very big choice to leave the wildlife park at the time. You know, I'd done a good stint there. My sister was coming in to take over. Uh, my father was still there. And I really felt the need to branch out and tell more stories i loved well one my my wife was embarking on her phd with mountain lions in the sierra nevada here in uh at the university of um reno nevada and we were in a situation where we were just getting together and she could either move out to the UK and be with me there or I could move over here and be with her here. And that was a huge choice, but she was embarking on working with mountain lions and it seemed that there was no way she was going to be able to do that uh, in Cambridge. So uh, so I took the, the, the opportunity at that moment in time to leave the wildlife park, move out here and start my own production company. Now, in the early days, for probably the first five years, we weren't really doing much much in the way of production because I was helping her with her project. We, between us over a five-year period, uh, handled 72 mountain lions, uh, 50 adults, about 52 adults and 20 uh, kittens, uh, putting GPS satellite collars on them. And this is where my experience with uh, tranquilizing wildlife came in because I was able to go out, tranquilize these lions in a tree. Uh, my wife got trained to do it as well. And so that was, we spent five years together in the field. I carried a camcorder with me at all times. Uh, I racked up hundreds of hours of footage of us uh, and working on her project. And um, it, it was an incredible time because it really one, it gave us the chance to work together with wildlife because that in itself is just, you know, it's what we had both been doing all of our lives. And two, it gave me a chance to carry a camera around and really start gathering footage in a very different environment, which I also loved. So I'm going to move on here because I don't want to wind all over the place, but um, I'll go on to this one. Why wildlife films? Because this is where it really ties in. And 
You know, it always had fascinated me that, you know, back in those days working with marketing with the the wildlife park, I was in a place where, let's say, we were struggling to get our messages out about this wildlife and the need for there to be um, more control over exotic wildlife. Because at the time, you know, there was still a lot of exotic wildlife being kept as pets. And we were really trying to show that that was not ideal. That was something that those animals would end up with us in cages. And that's not where this wildlife should be. And so we worked heavily with the RSPCA in those days, um, trying to get those messages out. But again, with TV, I found that here was this platform where you could reach millions upon millions of people in an evening with any message that you were able to turn into a TV program and put out there. And to me, that fascinated me from that moment on. It was like, well, here is this incredible tool that we can use just to get a larger message out, you know, a message of impact, a message of conservation. Back in those days, that was harder because... Conservation was almost a dirty word in the TV industry. You know, it didn't sell tickets. So um, it was hard to do make a program that was very heavily conservation orientated. And of course, that's changed completely now. And now we have all of these platforms, you know, YouTube, Vimeo, distribution on the web uh, to VOD platforms, um, you know, the, still the cable and network TV. Um, there's never been a better time to be able to get messages out in whatever way you, you, you want. And that's what I love about wildlife film is that you can create stories of impact that are so meaningful to you and a broader audience, and you can find the way that you want to put them out. It doesn't mean you have to go and get half a million dollars from a network to put a program together and put it out. In fact, you know, what's incredible now is that there are so many people who are individuals out there on the web who have more viewers than than many networks. Um, you know, I mean, some of these influencers have multiple millions of viewers, more than a primetime TV show gets on a network. And that in itself fascinates me because if we can... If we can change the way people are viewing these messages, these programs, then, you know, we're doing our job in terms of getting those messages out there. So so wildlife film has fascinated me from that perspective. Also, just my love for it. I mean, my love for creating, um, you know, so much of the mini films I make for local uh, NGOs um, or local organizations don't get millions of views. Right. What, what's ridiculous is I have footage out there of black bears in urban environments, which is something that I film on a regular basis because it's happening right around here. I have a, a footage library of urban bears running around in residential areas. And one clip that I think is, it, well, one, one time it was six seconds, but I think I've got a 20 second clip on there. It's had over, I think, 24 million views now. And what what's amazing is how, you know, you can you can work with a half a million dollars to make an hour special that goes out on network TV and it might never get twenty four million views. And this twenty second clip can go there and get twenty million views. Now of course that doesn't mean it's telling a story. It doesn't mean that it's um it has an important message or it has any impact other than the fact that it's out there raising awareness. Now 
my fascination is, well, if we have these tools, how can we start using those to create bigger impact? And of course, that's what everyone in the industry is trying to do these days. I mean, everyone is moving into social media. I personally am absolutely terrible with social media. It's one of my biggest downfalls is uh, not being able to use social media effectively. Um, and that's because for me, I don't like to be on my phone scrolling around and, and losing hours immersed in that world. Um, and so it's hard to see that as a tool that I don't use, uh, you know, more than five minutes a day if I'm, if I'm lucky. So, um, so really, yeah, that, you know, love for film, the creative aspect and the fact that it is a, an incredible me tool to get a message out like we used to back at the wildlife park with school talks. Okay, let's. I'm going to move on to um, my biggest challenge as being a wildlife filmmaker. Um, this is one that I, that comes up a lot when I'm speaking to other guests, and I've been asked before. And I think it's really, really important because, you know, one of the hardest things in this industry is that, you know, there there are a lot of people in this industry who have full time jobs working for networks or production companies and you know that's fantastic that is one avenue to take right there's job security there to some degree but so many of us in this industry are freelancers right we are contracted in to film now you know i have multiple job roles i'm a camera operator i'm a dp i'm uh, a producer i am a, a a podcast host i'm a presenter uh i am a mentor with the master wildlife filmmaking mentoring group all of these things are only possible for me to do because i'm a freelancer now i'll move into why i've chosen that way of doing things rather than trying to get a job with a production company you know in itself for security well for me one of the hardest things I found as being uh, being in the wildlife filmmaking industry is the time that you're away from home. Now, you're probably, if you listen to this on a regular basis, you'll know that most of the people I speak to, many of the camera people, producers, are away from home a lot. You know, in some instances, 10 months, I think Doug Allen was saying it's like 10 months of the year he's away from home. Now, when I was uh, a presenter with National Geographic, uh, I was never away that long, but I would be certainly be away for a month. I might be away for three weeks on one shoot, come back for two days, jump on another plane, and I'd head out. You know, at, at the height of it, I was taking around 16 flights a month. And that gets one, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that you have to embrace, right? 100%. And it's a lifestyle when you're not doing it and you're dreaming of doing it that sounds incredible. And there is that incredible aspect of it because you are traveling the world, you're seeing incredible things. But you are always on the road. And when you're always on the road, you have to be someone who loves being on the road and never at home. Because that, that's the reality of it, right? You are traveling all the time. Your head is in a place of work all the time because there's no real downtime from it when you're on the road. Now, I loved it for the time that I did that. But also there was a part of me that thought, wow, I wonder if this is how it is for good. Like if you are a camera person 
are you expected to be on the road all that time? And and the answer really is, well, you're not expected to, but if you want the work, then then yeah, you know, that's where the work is. You know, if you come off of a month-long shoot in Africa and someone says to you, you know, network says to you, hey, we've got this other shoot lined up for this date to this date. It's in India. Are you interested? Yeah, it's work, right? You want to be paid. So bang, you're off to India and now you're in the Arctic and now you're wherever it might be. But it's very rare that you get lots of work where you live. And so it has to be a lifestyle that you embrace. And I spoke to, I think, many of the podcast uh, guests over the years about how hard that can be from a family you know, point of view. Like if you have family at home, you have to be willing to spend time away from them. Now, I, I got to a point in my career where I didn't want to do that. That's the honest answer is I didn't want to be away all that time. I have two young children. I have a five and a just turned nine-year-old. And I did not want to be in a place where I was away and missing them growing up. And so I had to say to myself, okay, how is this possible? How can I be in the wildlife filmmaking industry And how can I have my cake and eat it? Which is, I want to be around my family. I want to spend time with my wife. I want to spend time with my kids. I want to be at home and witness my children growing up while I make a a designer life, uh, a career in the wildlife filmmaking industry. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm designing the way that I want to work in this industry. And that means I have to be a freelancer, right? Because I have to be able to take on various different jobs as they arise as long as they fit in with what I'm doing. That doesn't mean that I don't take on camera work and I don't travel. Uh, I totally do, but I do it for shorter periods of time. And those jobs can be extremely hard to find. Now, I'm lucky enough to be in a place, I'm in Reno, Nevada, actually south of Reno, but close to Reno, Nevada and close to Lake Tahoe, where we have incredible wildlife from mountain lions, coyotes, black bears, uh, you know, golden eagles, multiple types of uh, birds of prey, um, lizards and insects galore. And so there is no shortage of wildlife here in the high desert. And one of the things that I have been filming for over a decade now is black bears, and mainly in urban environments. Now, I have a massive stock library of urban bear footage that I've been going around and filming for the last few years because there is really no one else doing that. So I found this niche of of wildlife filming that is able to bring in an income for for me without having to actually be filming for a network or not filming specifically for a project. I have filmed those for projects and I have been sought out to specifically film those things for projects, but I don't have to do that all the time. I can go out this evening and go and film black bears. It's a great time of year for it right now. We're just coming up the last week of September. Bears are out fattening themselves up right now. And so I can go out and speculate on filming and gathering footage that I can then put out on my stock library sites and start selling. And that's bringing in an income. Now, I can also license that footage to, you know, privately to other organizations. There's a lot of the footage that I filmed recently, well, within the last year or so, is actually under contract by a network and will go out. And I can't license that footage until that network has shown it. But it's fantastic because it is giving me 
a job. It's part of my career to be able to go and do that whenever I like. So it's very much speculative, but also it raises awareness for what I do. And when people want black bears in residential areas, they seek me out to find that. We also have Mustang here. In Nevada, we have, I think, 50% of all the U.S.'s wild horses here in Nevada. And I've spent a lot of time in the last few weeks filming uh, for a project, uh, Wild Horses. So I'm building up all of these different things. There's ways that I can put together what I do. And the reason I'm really focusing on this is because, you know, when people are looking to break into this industry, it does feel like there's, you know, you go the the route or route of, you know, moving to Bristol to be near the Natural History Unit and other uh, entities all focusing on natural history programming. Or you try and get in with a production company that also, that is their main, uh, you know, the main programming is wildlife programming and you try and get a job there. But so many of us are trying to become camera people and freelancers and many camera people in this industry are freelancers. They're working for different networks, different uh, production companies around the world. And that's how it works. It is a uh, an industry that heavily relies on freelance people to get the programming that they need. And so I'm, I'm focusing on this because I think it's important to understand that you don't necessarily have to be a, um, you know, someone who said, okay, I'm, I want to be a camera person. I need to go and buy myself a $50,000 red camera. And when I have that gear, I'm going to put my card out to everyone and that's how I'm going to get work. It, it, it's one, it's not that simple Two, never buy a camera until it's ready to be until you've got a source of income to pay it off. And two, you know, there, and three, maybe um, there's there's multiple ways that you can use to be in this industry. And for me, that is one, having this podcast, this podcast, which right now is not monetized, right, costs me money to make this podcast. But it is something that can be monetized in the future. It can have advertising on it. It can branch out to do something that I'll be doing soon with a Patreon account that have to have people that subscribe to get behind the scenes or extra podcast episodes that, you know, are supplementary to this standard once a month. And so with that, with my mentoring, with my filming, with producing, uh, which, you know, last year I was producing for Animal Planet, um, there are multiple ways that you can earn a living in this industry. And I think it's really important to know because, you know, that if you're a camera person, you're, if you are looking to be, you know, if you're a camera operator, then typically you're out there with a producer or a director asking you, you're telling you what to do, right? Point, point the camera over here. This is what we're trying to film. We're doing this. If you're a DP, a director of photography, then you're a director and a camera person. And now you have to learn how to tell a story in the way that a producer would be putting a story together. So you have all of these experiences and facets to your knowledge that means that you could go and work as a producer. Now, it's not easy if you're a director or a camera person to go and get a producer's job. You have to get experience under your belt. But that's where, you know, taking opportunities up, doing pro bono work in producing, you know, learning how to get your foot in the door so that you can build up this experience to then say, okay, now I can take on a producer's role. 
Now I can take on a director of photography role. Now I can be a camera person. Now, what you don't want to do is take on too many things. So you're spreading yourself really thin and people are like, well, I don't want that person because, you know, they're not a great camera person because they're focusing on producing or they're not a great producer because they're always out with the camera doing photography. There's, there's a, you know, happy medium of trying to find what works. And my biggest piece of advice uh, would be, if you're looking to do any of these things, don't ever let, don't ever wait for the opportunity to go out and make a story as a producer. Don't ever wait for the opportunity to go and film something as a director of photography. Don't ever wait to film something as a camera person. You know, if you sit and wait for these things to happen, they are not going to happen. People in this industry most commonly get recognized because of what they are doing, right? If someone sees someone's work on YouTube or Vimeo, they get a call from a researcher and say, hey, we saw you film this behavior. We've not seen that before, or we would love to have that behavior in our show, send a camera person out and work with you, or we would love to use your footage in our show. Uh, you know, can we do that? Suddenly you're getting recognized because you've speculated, right? It's not that you've been out practicing, but you've never really done anything and you're kind of embarrassed about what you've done so you don't put it online. Look, I tell you this right now, I am embarrassed about all of the presenting work I've ever done pretty much, right? I, I kid you not. The camera work that I've done, I am constantly embarrassed about certain things back in the day. But if they weren't out there for the world to see, no one would ever know that I was a camera person or a presenter, right? That's really the long and the short of it. You have to get over it really, really fast to understand that everybody has a, you know, a journey, right? They have a journey through of experience getting better and better at what they do. And if you don't show that journey, if that stuff is not out there, how does anyone know that you've done anything? Yes, later on, when you get bigger jobs and better jobs and you're known in the industry, you can start hiding and getting rid of some of that footage that's out there because you are embarrassed and you don't want it to be there and it doesn't need to be there anymore. But look, it's really a case that if you're passionate about what you're doing, if you're a passionate filmmaker, then taking your camera and filming and putting it online and putting small clips up there. I have tons and tons of small clips of footage that are out there of bears that have got me work, that have got me uh, licensing sales from just, you know, stock footage. Uh, and they are just clips of behavior that I filmed. At least do that. Go out and film and just put little pieces up that works really well for social media you see some of the biggest people in the industry who have huge followings who are just putting out a clip of a you know an animal that they filmed and it's 10 seconds long and they just put a little story in there that's all you have to do right you don't need to necessarily go and film stories about the wildlife and start and image sequences and put whole films together. And another, you know, speaking of that, another great piece of advice, I think Nate Dapper mentioned this on the podcast, that if you are, you know, if you want to get a film in, a, in an industry to raise awareness about yourself and your, your skills and, you know, put a film in uh, to try and win an award, not that that's the be all and end all, um, make a three minute film, you know, it's far easier to make a three minute film than it is to make a one and a half hour feature 
to put it in and get recognized because you will get as much recognition for a three minute than you will. I mean, it, it's different, but but there's the potential of being noticed for a three minute film, you know, just as much as there is for a one and a half hour film. Okay, I'm, uh, I don't want to ramble here, so I'm going to get to a few more of these questions and then uh, uh, we'll see what we've got. Okay, um, probably the biggest experience, greatest experience um, that I have had as a wildlife filmmaker, well, as a presenter, most certainly the greatest experience I ever had was um, getting to dive with the sardine run off the coast of Durban in South Africa. Most incredible experience, largest gathering of marine mammals in the world. There were estimates were around 400 common dolphin there were around 20 to possibly more bronze whaler sharks black tip sharks uh gannets coming down from the sky tuna coming in and feeding uh we didn't have any whales there at the time but all of these other creatures were just astonishing and to be diving with a bait ball of sardines uh, while dolphins were moving through at incredible speeds was just absolutely mind-blowing. And so that was by far my greatest experience um, as a wildlife filmmaker. There's so many experiences that you have as a filmmaker that, you know, are way up there. But that's one of the ones that just the memory of that and the just the... The hour that I was underwater with that bait ball was like an hour-long adrenaline shot. <laughs> I mean, it was very tiring, but it was, um, you know, it was incredible. Uh, and, uh, that, yeah, a most uh, special experience. Um, I think to finish this off, uh, and again, apologies, this is Plan B, uh, as I said, Plan B emergency podcast. <laughs> um, so asking myself questions is a, a weird one. Um I think I'm going to finish this off by saying, uh, uh, by giving some more advice. And I think that advice is really just reiterating on the fact that if you want to be in this industry, and so many of you listening to this podcast are here to hear people's journeys, that professionals in the field, how they got here, how do they manage it? Because it can feel so lonely when you are there with this dream of being a, uh, you know, in the industry, whether it's a camera person, a producer, a researcher, an editor, uh, an audio person, whatever it might be, it can feel extremely lonely when there are very few jobs available in this industry. And, you know, when a job comes up, let's say with a BBC Natural History Unit as a re for a researcher, and there are hundreds of people vying for it, and you're just one of them, and you don't get a call back, or you get a call back and it says no, it can be, it can be hard to see how you would ever get into an industry like this. But here is the real secret source about all of this, and that is pick up your camera, whatever camera you have, pick it up film anything that you can go out and film don't spend lots of money to fly to africa to buy a camera or rent camera gear to try and create something incredible the first go round because it's just not going to happen you have to have a passion for this and you have to be out building uh you know an archive of stories or just footage or just putting in the hours of being out there to, for people to take you seriously and you know if you go along to be a camera person to an interview and they say great what have you done where's your portfolio and you say well I haven't done anything yet you know I'm waiting to get a job so I can film for you 
you are you, you've just lost that opportunity right because no one's going to take you on as a camera person unless you have been out there and done something so pick up a camera if you're a producer pick up a camera and produce a story right you don't have to be the greatest filmmaker or you know find someone with a camera who wants to be a camera person or already already is and encourage them to film something that you're writing right write a story get them to film it publish it online and let that speak for your work and let you know and then move on to the next thing it could be about ants in the pavement outside your house it could be about a tree that's planted in your backyard it could be about um you know seed distribution in the area that you live it could be absolutely anything and you know pigeons blackbirds you name it just film them learn how to film learn how to tell a story look for behavior within the species you're looking at and go well that's interesting i wonder why it does that and tell a story about it you know it may just be the a day in the life of a robin or a blackbird it may be something to do with you know wildlife in unexpected places like ants in the crack of a pavement or a tree that you find growing out of the tarmac in the middle of the road that's like how on earth did that ever get there tell a story and look at innovative ways to do that put them online and let it speak for you right and then you know never stop pursuing going for your dreams going to interviews going to film festivals and meeting the people in the industry who really are going to be your peers and your colleagues as you move through this industry thank you so much to for listening to this uh, emergency plan b episode <laughs> about my story um, i very much appreciate it um, i do hope you're getting a lot of value out of this podcast because that's what it's here for so that you can hear the stories of people in the industry and uh, learn how they did it learn how you can do it and uh, find your way in a very you know incredibly fulfilling industry thanks so much until next time i'll see you then if you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series' future episodes. You can find out more information about wildlife filming at jakewillers.com. And if you're interested in starting a career in the wildlife filmmaking industry or being mentored to further your career, then please visit jakewillers.com forward slash mentorship. Thanks for listening.